because we didn't localize the pricing, um, the year later, we started to see a lot of churn from, from South America. I guess they realized that it wasn't in pesos, it was in US dollars, which is a pretty big chunk of change there. Um, and so that got us to have, that made us really have to start thinking about pricing um, and actually localizing costs and changing things for different types of countries, changing the messaging for different countries um, and the, the general user experience. So. We all strive for more nowadays, more traffic, more revenue, more growth. In this never-ending battle for more, it's easy to forget what's important. So what is important? Building real relationships with real humans and trying to be better each day without caring quite so much about getting more. After all, by building real and meaningful relationships, you'll have way more than you ever need. The SaaS SEO Show is a platform for meaningful connections and honest conversations with people who are real, hardworking practitioners and high performers in the SaaS industry. We're here to learn and get inspired by them, and we hope you do too. Now, here's your host, George Cassiotis. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the SaaS SEO Show. I'm your host, George Cassiotis, and today I'm very excited to be hosting a very special guest, Nadia Koja, who is a revenue-driven growth marketer who specializes in SEO to help businesses increase their acquisition organically without having to rely on a large budget. Nadia was formerly the chief growth uh, of uh, chief of out. Nadia was formerly the chief of growth at Vengage, where helped scale the revenue from zero to ten million entirely through these strategies. Nadia has been featured on Forbes. CBC, Wall Street Journal, and many other notable publications. She has spoken around the world, educating various business leaders about building and executing scalable marketing strategies. Natya, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Before we dive into the questions that I have for you um, today, can you please share a couple of things about you, your background, what has brought you to where you are today? Yeah, sure. Um, so I actually studied theater um, for my undergrad. Uh, and then upon graduating, realized that probably wouldn't really make a lot of money doing that. So um, I decided to do my master's in digital media, uh, all in Toronto. And then I started looking at, you know, creating immersive experiences and looking at how to engage audiences better. Um, found myself reading a lot of content books and a lot of marketing books. Um, and researching and talking to a lot of people in that industry. Um, so I thought, you know, I could probably try this out. And uh, I ended up applying at a bunch of places. Ben Gage was one of the few people that uh, actually got back to me. Um, and so I started there as a junior marketer, not really knowing anything about anything. Um, and I remember on my first day, I think I had to Google what is SEO. Um, but in my defense, and I've told this to Eugene, CEO, that he technically never asked me if I knew SEO. So, um, so since then, I've kind of been, you know, learning and applying different skills. Uh, but because of that, without that traditional training, I think it forced me to think a little bit outside the box. And a lot of the strategies that we've used and found success with are not as conventional as um, most people would technically uh, say are. Okay, and we will definitely talk about uh, some of these strategies, hopefully, throughout this episode. Now, you started working at Vengage back in 2015, uh, and you started as a, as a junior marketer, and 
quickly, I would say, climbed the ranks until he became the chief growth officer in uh, 2018. Can you please tell me what this experience has taught you about organic growth and marketing in general? Um, just from um, a general uh, perspective, you know, yeah. um, what has this experience taught you? Yeah, I mean, I think I was very fortunate to join an early stage startup without like really any serious backing at all. Because um, it really teaches you, or at least it taught me the side of marketing, but also how to run a business, um, which I don't think a lot of people get that opportunity to do, uh, especially right out of school, right? So it was, um, it was a unique experience in that sense. But uh, at that point and still now, like I, I was always um, very impact driven. I needed, if I don't see the results and I don't see my own impact, I get bored. Um, I need to be able to constantly be um, growing something uh, or creating something. Um, so that working in that environment really gave me that opportunity. So it, it was definitely tricky because I, like I said, I didn't really know what I was doing uh, at all. <laughs> um, so it was a lot of uh, testing and failing really quickly and iterating um, on a lot of results. But, you know, I work, I got to work really closely with Eugene um, and it felt because we had such a small team, it was really cohesive and we were really working together and scrap, scraping things together to try to make it grow. Um, and over time, you know, as we started scaling the company and I started figuring out what processes worked um, and how to train people, even like the management experience, you don't get that type of experience just going to school and learning management training, right? Like you have to be in it, you have to experience it. So I think I got to go to the real school of life by working there. Um, and it taught me a lot of skills that um, I still, I get to apply with my, my current clients now and um, with other work that I do. Uh, so growing through that process, it was, it was challenging, but it was a lot of fun. Um, and yeah, I'm grateful that I got to learn very, very quickly on the job. The thing is that uh, the thing with this specific category that uh, Vengage uh, is, is, you know, competing with uh, many different uh, companies is that it's extremely saturated and it's a really tough category to compete in uh, since there are many big players such as Canva, for example, that dominate organic search results um, and pretty much any other channel, I would say, uh, with their unlimited resources. The question that I have for you is how did you manage to grow uh, and grow substantially in such a saturated and highly competitive category without, I, I can only assume, without having the resources that other competitors had? Yeah, um, it, I mean, that's where we had to be really creative, right? So um, we didn't have the budget to rely on, you know, spending on paid uh, channels. And at that time, we, there wasn't... It was a little bit easier to do paid too. Um, there wasn't as much privacy, uh, as much privacy data issues as there is now. But um, we, we, you know, we looked at the data at that time. I think we were driving like twenty thousand sessions a month or something to the site, um, and SEO was just working well. So Eugene said, "Hey, let's focus on this channel." Um, and we started, we started small, right? We started with one little category. We like to call it the David and Goliath approach. Um, so we started, obviously, we were in the infographics category um, and not competing with Canva, which is more of like the social media and graphic design category at that time. Um, so we really just narrowed in into the infographics category and really tried to carve out that market. 
Uh, and as we started to do that, um, and slowly started expanding different categories um, that we wanted to compete in, but it, a lot of what we did was um, we actually reverse engineered some of what Canva was doing um, and tried to figure out, you know, where they were competing, where maybe we could actually beat them, where some of the gaps in the market that they weren't going after so that we could be the first one to get there. Um, and that was a lot of the strategy. And then we really leveraged uh, partnerships and co-marketing and, and kind of using bigger companies to help us uh, get more awareness and more visibility by doing a lot of the heavy lifting ourselves and creating really good content for them. And so that was a lot of the strategy initially. Um, of course, it's just gotten more and more complicated now with, uh, with how to do SEO, just with more people going after it. There's definitely a huge need for content marketers and SEOs right now. Um, it's, it's such a saturated market. Everyone's trying to figure it out because people are realizing now that paid is not as reliable, right? Yeah. Uh, one question that I have for you here, obviously, I guess that as I see it, at least, it makes sense when the, the LTV uh, is, is relatively low. Uh, for example, for a product that's, that starts at around 20 bucks per month, I would say that the LTV would be um, mm -hmm. around 200 bucks. Uh, I'm, you know, uh, I'm only make, making assumptions here, but um, did you consider paid as a, as a viable solution back then uh, for acquiring customers? And did, um, it make, did it make sense like financially? So at that point, paid did not make sense um, financially for us. I don't, I don't actually remember if we were running that. I think there were some basic campaigns that were running on autopilot, but um, we knew that we wanted to double down on SEO. So actually, once we started figuring it out, then we started looking at other channels and thinking, okay, now we figured out SEO, let's go after all these other channels. But I realized I'm like, we don't have the resources to go after other channels. So if I stop doing, because I was doing a lot of the work. So if I stopped doing SEO and started shifting my attention somewhere else and figuring out that other thing, we might lose um, all the traction that we gained. So we decided to double down and continue growing what we figured out and getting better at it um, and, and putting more of our time and effort into that. And then as we started hiring and scaling the team, that's when we started, you know, layering in um, different types of expertise and, and scaling up different types of channels. One thing I noticed about uh, Vengage's website is the fact that even Till this day, I guess, uh, a big chunk of the traffic comes from non-English speaking countries, for example, Mexico, Brazil, and so on. And I guess that you have done an amazing job there. And I'd like to know how you approached uh, localization slash translation back then and what learnings you got about how users, if you have any learnings on how users from different countries interact with the website. Um, yeah, yeah that, that, I definitely have a lot of learnings there. That was, um, so that was a hypothesis as we started scaling up. We started, uh, we just had a theory. We we're like, you know what, let's see if, if uh, we're getting some people coming in from, from South America and from Mexico. And so we said, you know, let's just translate one of our top articles and see what happens. We're not even going to put that much effort into it. And within a few weeks, an article that was driving about 5,000 sessions, that was like our biggest volume piece in, in North America, was driving five times that in Mexico um, without much effort. So we were like, okay, maybe there's an opportunity here. Um, so we started, we started localizing the site and that process, because again, we didn't have a lot of money. We wanted to spend our money on like hiring people rather than um, outsourcing too much on, on things that we weren't sure about yet. 
So I remember talking to a bunch of different localization companies and seeing what the, the costs were and what the process was. And we decided to just figure it out ourselves. So I, I found, I outsourced some, um, a couple of translators and QA people and we did it all ourselves, uh, literally just editing the files and uploading them to the site. And then um, just to see if we could actually make an impact there. Um, and once we started to see people were coming in, like we were driving a lot more acquisition um, and a lot of conversions from Mexico. So we started scaling it up and we gave ourselves a goal. We're like, can we do 30 languages in one year? Um, and so we did that. And I think now there's maybe close to 40 languages or something um, on the site. Uh, and what we realized, which was a struggle, is that because we didn't localize the pricing, um, the year later, we started to see a lot of churn from, from South America. I guess they realized that it wasn't in pesos, it was in US dollars, which is a pretty big chunk of change there. Um, and so that got us to have, that made us really have to start thinking about pricing um, and actually localizing costs and changing things for different types of countries, changing the messaging for different countries um, and the, the general user experience. So. Um, I think we got it to a point where it was pretty balanced. It's not like the same, obviously it's not driving the same type of revenue as uh, the US and Canada, but we, by competing in so many different countries at the same time, we, we gathered a lot of data. Um, and because we were able to grow organically in so many different countries, um, we were able to hire people in uh, LATAM to actually own those sites. Um, we started focusing more on geolocation and understanding how to do marketing in different countries. Um, and yeah, it's very, very different behavior across every single country. Every single category is different. Certain countries are looking more into like the infographics category. Some are looking more into, you know, other categories. Um, but it gave us good insight into where to actually go deeper. Um, so yeah, it was a good learning experience. It's definitely made me realize that you can't just go after a market and say, Hey, it's going to be the exact same results, right? <laughs> like you have to really pay attention, um, to, we, I guess there's different ways of saying it, but I look at like the cost of a cup of coffee. Some people look at the cost of a Big Mac. Yeah. Uh, there are all those ratios that you can compare it to, but um, yeah, we started paying attention to that a lot closer. I think that the point that you made uh, about pricing is a, is a very important one. Uh, and I guess that, um, you know, uh, you know that after uh, taking the lesson and after, you know, seeing it in action. Um, now, I would like to shift gears a bit and discuss um, Constrage, okay? And now, at this point, um, you work with clients and you help them um, with, uh, with their growth efforts. And I'd like to know, at this point, after having learned all these things that you have learned throughout these years, how do you approach Constrage? And more specifically, I would like to know how do you manage to maintain a balance between, for example, content that's created for a search audience or content um, that serves other purposes, for example, for example, thought leadership content or yeah. you know, product marketing content. And so how do you approach that today? And what are maybe the determining factors that, you know what, uh, in this case, we need more uh, content that's created for a search audience um, rather than thought leadership content or anything else? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And and so one of the things I usually preface with clients or even with interviews at other companies, right, is that I don't see myself as a content marketer and I don't see myself as an SEO. I see myself as a content growth marketer. Uh, and the reason I say that is because I, I think a lot of traditional content marketing is very 
much directed by sales in some cases, right? Where sales will be like, hey, we need a white paper on XYZ topic. And then you'll be like, why? And they won't have a valid answer. They won't really know. They don't understand the data behind it. Um, whereas growth marketing, you're constantly in the weeds of the data, right? You're constantly looking for everything has to have an impact. You're testing frequently. Um, it's not about whether somebody wants it or not. It's about what the customer needs and what the, the data shows. Um, and so that's why I'm like, I'm not a content marketer. I'm not an SEO. I'm a content growth marketer. Uh, and But SEO is one of the channels that I leverage. Um, and so from that perspective, the way I approach strategy is I, I start by digging into the data and understanding, you know, like, where are the customers coming from first? Who are they? Um, uh, and why are they engaging with this product to begin with? Like, what content are they actually interacting with? Um, and then using that understanding, that's where we start building out a strategy for, um, for kind of like a more holistic approach of what's the general message and what's the general theme or authority that we want to build um, for this website and how do we use content to achieve that. And that kind of starts to dictate, you know, um, it, the, the, a lot of the content is around the same topic. So it's not necessarily about figuring out the different topics altogether um, because you're building authority within one market. Um, but it's about repurposing it effectively for the right channel. Um, so you can talk about, you know, we can talk about the theme of infographics, but we can say um, the way that we position an article that's meant for PR and for thought leadership is not going to be the exact same piece of content, but it's still kind of the same message. Um, it's just the approach changes. So for, for Vengage, as an example, the way we did thought leadership was we wanted to show people that we could, you could tell an interesting story with data um, and with design. So we would create really intricate and we put a lot of effort into original research and creating these like unique pieces of content. It was still about infographics, but it wasn't necessarily about the company. It was more about the, the visibility that people could see like, oh, look how amazing you can make some information by just visualizing it better. Um, and so that was kind of the PR thought leadership approach, whereas the the SEO approach was a little bit more, it was a lot more keyword driven, right? And so we were saying, hey, like people are searching for all these things. Let's create, let's go after a template strategy. Let's see if we can create enough volume of templates to actually target um, all of these specific search queries that people are going after and create the content that way. And then when it came to customer marketing, that's where we started paying attention a little bit more about like, how do you actually, like, we're it was more about educating the customer on how they create this, why they need it, um, wh where they might use it inside and outside of their, their jobs um, and things like that. And then with the product marketing, that was a lot more about how do we align certain features or certain parts of the product um, to the outcomes that uh, the ideal customer, the ICP would actually need uh, in order to be successful. So um, would you same content across different, <laughs> different areas. Would you say that uh, a factor on, you know, what we need more, for example, let's say, uh, or where I should focus more uh, would be whether or not people are actually looking for this product uh, and there is demand, uh, obvious, it's obvious that the research demand, um, does this play a role? Uh, and I mean, I have an example here. Uh, let's say that we are a video editing software, okay? Is this a strong indicator for you that, you know what? We don't need thought leadership con. No, uh, people are looking for our solution online. This is what we need to uh, to go after. So, is this something also that you that you uh, look when you start working with a new client nowadays? I think it depends on 
I think it depends on the product. Like now, because everything, like let's say video marketing, right, is so saturated that, uh, or video editing is so saturated that you, you still need a differentiator, right? So that's where the thought leadership comes in. It's like the thought leadership angle is always about how does your, how's your brand different from every other brand that's out there? Like what makes your video editing software better than everybody else's video editing software? And so that's where the unique thought leadership angle comes in. But then the SEO part might be, yeah, people are looking for video editing software. Let's go after those terms because that's technically still what it is. But you need both, right? You need a a balance of um, using that, building up that brand and that visibility and that interest behind what you're doing and connecting it back with, uh, with the SEO. So the same with Vengage, like the differentiator was we were, we're not Canva, right? Like for, it was, our product was a lot more suited for professionals, like people doing actually, who were actually using data, who were doing marketing, who needed to visualize some important information, you know, like you're in an important board meeting, you need to show people this intricate story of like why your company is successful. And you had like a few minutes to do that. That's the audience that we were going after, not the, you know, moms making an invitation for their kid's birthday or whatever, which is how I would figure Canva to be more of a product. Obviously, Uh, I would like to ask you something based on uh, what you you, uh, shared with me uh, earlier about uh, analytics. And uh, I would like to hear your thoughts on that. If this is something that you do nowadays, uh, do you also uh, take a look at data, uh, conversion data uh, on a product level? Like, okay, that's fine. We, we yeah. you know, had so many clicks and so on and so forth. But what happens after someone signs up, for example, for a free trial, if there is a free trial? Uh, do yeah. you take a, a look at this data as well? Yeah, I look, at, I look at the funnel because you can't do content effectively by just isolating and siloing yourself in the top of the funnel. Like that's where the, that's where the impact fails in a lot of situations, right? Like if somebody's just focusing um, on one little tiny piece and they're not actually understanding the the high level view you're not going to see what the impact is so that's when i say like i start doing an audit and look at the data i look at everything i'm like where are the conversion points best because that's where we know where we want to optimize like can we use content to optimize and increase something um or maybe something's working really well maybe that's what we should be doubling down on or applying across different parts of um the user journey so yeah for sure i i always look at the everything from acquisition all the way down to retention to help decide where to focus more on acquisition. Like if one audience member is retaining a lot more, let's go after that person um, instead of trying to go after everybody, right? Yeah, definitely. Uh, I'm with you 100% with regards to that. And this brings me to my next question, which is nowadays or in the past, if you have experience with that, um, do you conduct customer interviews? Uh, do you actually speak to people who are paying for the, for the service to see not only you know, the, the use cases and the jobs to be done, uh, which don't get me wrong, it's important, uh, but also uh, what they were using before uh, that solution, what made them uh, change, what was the, you know, uh, the moment uh, and you know, what drive the, the change? Uh, do, you, do you also do that and do you find value? Do you have any tips to share for, for our audience? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it depends on what you're, so I think with, if it's a product specific call where you're user testing, um, that's a different type of interview. But for, for me, what I would usually try to gain is an understanding of what this, what the outcome is that they're trying to achieve, right? Rather than why they're using the product or why they came to the product in the first place. Because if you understand the outcome, like we're not selling, we're not selling a product or selling, we're selling their dream, right? Um, or their, 
um, they're again, your job to be done, whatever they're trying to achieve. So really focusing on what that meant and then working backwards from, from that point to try to figure out how they got to the product to begin with, um, or how I might get them to the product if they're like an ideal customer, but they haven't necessarily tried out the product yet. Um, that's why I like speaking at uh, events so much because there were so many opportunities to talk to people and understand what their pain points were and then figure out if we could position ourselves properly for, for those audiences. But yes, uh, definitely find value in talking to customers. I think it's that, that, that and the combination of data is, is the first places that you need to start to really understand what, to, what you need to form that content strategy. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And we had a great experience uh, a few weeks ago with a, with a new client of ours. Uh, it wasn't customer interviews, but it was a customer survey. And the, the responses that we got were, were pretty amazing uh, because they pointed, out, pointed us out to directions that we never have thought of. Like, uh, are people using this product? I, I didn't know that. I didn't know this competitor, you know. Uh, so I really find value nowadays in um, uh, taking information, retrieving information directly from, from customers. Now, you have substantial experience working with SaaS companies, and um, I would like to hear your thoughts when it comes to mistakes that you see companies make um, when it comes to con marketing and SEO. Um, oof, that's a, there's where to start. Um, there's a, it, it depends, oh, there's a few, there's a few areas we could look at this. I think let's maybe say, when it comes to content marketing, so I'll start with one. There's the volume play, right? People think, uh, I need a piece of content for every keyword that exists out there. And I'm like, no, you don't. And I'm a firm believer in less is more. So when people are just going after massive, massive volume, I'm like, that's just more and more stuff for you to manage and maintain. But there's ways that it if the company is large enough and you have that skill, fine, that strategy could work for you. But, um, but that's one of the mistakes I think um, is one of the biggest mistakes where people hire a bunch of contract writers and they're like, write a thousand word article and like, here's like 10,000 different terms and write one for one article for each of these keywords might work for a little bit, but then eventually you're not going to be able to handle that volume later on when you have to go back and update all that content when you have to optimize it later on. So it's harder to actually make the right improvements and see the the bigger scale of that success by just doing that strategy. I think that's one of the biggest mistakes, at least I see. Yeah, yeah, uh, I agree with that. Now, um, before we start uh, wrapping things up, <clears throat> I would like to uh, ask you um, a last question that I have for you. Um, and it's based on an article that you wrote um, back in 2017 about the fact that um, CEOs should focus uh, on improving company culture. And I'd like to <clears throat> reframe this question a bit and ask your thoughts on what should be the focus of the person who leads the growth uh, efforts of a company. Is it to improve the culture on all things around growth? Um, is it something else? Um, and if it is to improve uh, the culture on all things around growth, how can this uh, be attained? Yeah, um, I, think, I think the... I think every person's responsibility at a company is to take on a little bit of that founder mentality, right? And so everybody's, 
you're, if you have a customer support team, for instance, who's not constantly educating the rest of the company about customer support and showing the value of what customers are saying, no one's going to care. Um, if you have a marketing team that's not showing you the efforts or like the value of their efforts, no one else at the company is going to care. So I think it's, it's a responsibility that every single team has. Um, but growth, a lot of depending, it's a vague term, but a lot of different organizations have it structured differently. Some people have, you know, marketing product and success reporting into growth. Some people have it where it's just marketing or, or maybe it's marketing and sales. Um, but um, depending on that, I think it is a responsibility of the growth team to uh, encourage that growth mentality across the entire company and use the stories and the data um, and work with every single team member because it's not a un it's not a one person job, right? The growth person is really just seeing how everything works in tandem and trying to optimize on different places. But you can't do growth successfully without the impact of customer success, without sales, without um, products, efforts, all working um, in alignment. So yeah, I think it is a big part of it's a part of the company, right? You need the whole company's purpose is to grow. So of course, the growth person has to, <laughs> to yeah. take a stand. <laughs> exactly. And I think that this is a, a great way to, to bring this to a close. Nadia, where can people find out more about you and get in touch? Yeah, they can um, uh, get in touch with me at my website. It's thisisnadia.com. Um, Nadia with a Y, not an I. Uh, and Or you can find me on Twitter or LinkedIn as well. That's great. Nadia, thank you very much for being on the show. Thanks so much. Another episode of the SaaS SEO show has wrapped. We hope this episode has taught you something new too. We'd like you to connect with us so you can keep up with all the new content that we're creating. Before you go, it would mean the world to us if you could subscribe to this podcast and over at our YouTube channel where we upload the video version of this and every episode. Until next time.